Um, we're glad you're here, but what we're about to do now is we're about to open the scriptures, and, and uh, we believe that this is the means by which heaven speaks to earth, um, that God has broken through and given us a voice that we can trust. And you and I both know there's a lot of voices out there saying, trust me, trust me, trust me. And, and the church for thousands of years and before that, the Jewish community believed that this is the single voice um, that is above all other voices, which is why we take time in our worship to open it and listen to what the Lord has to say. And I, I pray, even if you don't believe, maybe you'll open your heart and your mind to the fact that maybe this is, in fact, the word of God and the truth. Um, we are in the middle of a series of messages on the names of God in the Bible. So we're going to learn another one today, and I pray that it will impact your heart and your life. Let me um, pause another moment and ask the Lord's help. Father, we, we pause before you as the, the Almighty, and we are living in a world that is often confusing, um, surprising, disheartening, discouraging, sometimes disappointing. Um, and yet at the same time, there are so many joys to be had in this life, like watching young faces sing songs of Jesus and being able to go places, camping with our kids and different things. And we're just thankful for the good things, but we're also cognizant of the fact that this is a, a difficult world sometimes. And so we want, um, Lord, in this time that we've set aside just to hear from you, we want to hear from you. We pray that your, um, your spirit would kind of pull back the curtains that separates heaven from earth and we would be able to hear your voice and that you would encourage those here. And, and I pray for those hearts that have not yet bowed the knee to you to accept the simple fact that you exist and that you have done something remarkable to make us your sons and daughters that you would maybe melt the heart and allow them to, to begin the journey um, towards faith. So Lord, will you bless this time, please, and um, give me um, clarity. And I pray that the spirit of Jesus would be seen in the way that I speak, in my body language, and the tone of my voice. Uh, in Christ's name I pray. Amen. I think all of us know that, that certain names carry power. That is, they do something to us. They impact us. If you were sitting around a campfire up in the woods back in the 80s as a teenager and you heard the name Freddy Krueger, um, chances are there might be a little kind of a tingle to come up your spine, you know, because that name back in the 80s uh, kind of scared some of us. It doesn't really scare us now when you look back. He looks like a emaciated burn victim, but be that as it may, back then it, it carried a certain amount of power for those rebellious teenagers who actually watched that movie. Um, or another name, uh, when we say the name Navy Seals. You hear that name, and probably as an American, you feel a sense of pride. And I guarantee you, if you were in a hostage situation and you heard, um, you heard the report that the seals are coming, you'd be going, oh, yeah, they're coming. It'd fill you with a sense of strength and power, because that's what comes with a name. If I said the name, a very popular but anger-producing name, Osama bin Laden, uh, chances are you might feel a sense of anger, um, course, notice I put seals and Osama bin Laden next to each other because one clearly took out the other. Uh, <laughs> it's again, a sense of national pride. Uh, we're almost at the 4th of July, so I could throw that in there. Um, I'd say the Marines, but it's a little bit self-serving to say that, so I went with Navy SEALs. <laughs> or the name Home. I know not everybody had a great home growing up, but it creates, for me, a nostalgic sense of longing, a time of simplicity, a time of belonging, a time when I didn't have the bare responsibility my parents did. 
um, is a place of warmth for me, and chances are, if you had a good home life, it probably is that for you. Those, those single names, are, are, they carry power. That is, if we understand what they mean, uh, because they embody something. They, they embody truth uh, of either what we've experienced or what we've come to know in a person. And the same is true of, of the names of God. They're, they're meant to, when we hear them, when we speak them, when we sing them, say them, repeat them, meditate on them, ponder them. They're intended to impact our hearts and impact our lives. And we're going to look, we've already looked at the name Father. We've looked at the sacred name of Yahweh. Um, and we're going to look at a, at a different one this morning found in the book of Revelation. Now, I, I know that the book of Revelation scares a lot of people um, because it's filled with symbols and filled, filled with images. Um, but I'll tell you, it's, it's become one of the most powerful books in my life. Uh, provided one doesn't get bogged down into the symbolic detail, I think it tells a very powerful story. And so um, I am going to look at the name that is found three times in the book of Revelation. Um, chapter 1, verse 8, it's found at the beginning of the book. At the very end of the book, it's found in chapter 22, verse 13. And kind of the focus text for this morning is found in twenty-one, Revelation 21. By the way, for those of you who aren't familiar with the Bible, it's the very last book of the Bible. Many consider it to be the scariest book of the Bible. Um, and this is the text. Let's, let, let me read it for you so that we can um, then kind of tie some things to it. And he who is seated on the throne, and this is a, the Apostle John, one of Jesus' disciples, um, he has been, he's given these visions of, of heaven and, and a lot of snapshots of human history, especially as it, as it heads towards the end of days. And this is um, part of a vision of the end of days at the very end of the book in which he hears um, a voice from the throne speak. And this is what it says, beginning in the middle of verse 5. It says, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, uh, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And you notice the translation, this is the ESV, capitalizes Alpha and capitalizes O, because it considers them names, proper names. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this heritage, um, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. That's an amazing promise. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And yes, that last part is in the Bible about the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. The name is found right there in, in verse 6. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Like I said, that, that, that name, Alpha and Omega, occurs three different times in the book. What exactly does the name mean? Like, when you hear it, like you hear the word name Navy Seal or some other name, like home, what is it supposed to do to our souls and hearts? Uh, well, I'd like to take a stab at kind of providing a, 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 the meaning of that name, followed by how I believe it's supposed to impact our souls, kind of the two questions, what does it mean and, and how does it influence or how should it impact our souls? Now, in terms of Alpha and Omega, um, you've probably driven enough long or by enough sororities and fraternities to understand a little bit about the Greek alphabet, um, Phi Beta, Beta Kappa or Delta Phi Tau or whatever. Um, most, I think, know that Alpha is the beginning of the Greek alphabet and Omega is the end of the Greek alphabet. It is our A and Z, or Alpha and Omega. 
That's God's way of saying, I am in some way, shape, or form the beginning, and in some way, shape, or form, I am the end. I am the first, and I am the last. Okay, that's obviously kind of what it means. What I'd like to do is I'd like to break that down into the beginning, the middle, and the end. Or the alpha, that's the beginning. All of the letters in between, you know, beta, gamma, delta, epsilon, or B, C, D, E, all the letters in between, and then the final one, which is omega. So there's the beginning, the middle, and the end. First one, I'm just gonna take for a second. Second one's gonna be a little bit longer. Third one, about the same, and then there'll be a brief application at the end, okay? Starting with the beginning, he says, I am the alpha. I am the alpha, in other words, beginning the first, and this is what I think he means. That is, he is the creator, the source, the origin. I know that's hard to read with the light background, but he's basically saying, before anything was, before anything came into being, I was. He predates everything that exists. Uh, all human existence, all life existence, the universe, he, he predates it all, and out of him came everything. He's the source, the origin of all things. And when he did create everything, he looked upon it and he said, it is good, it is beautiful, it is morally flawless. That's how it began. So that first part of alpha basically means that he's the beginning of everything, and therefore he is the owner of everything, okay? He started it all. Nothing happened without him starting it. Nothing exists without him being the beginning. So that's, that's kind of what that first part means, and since that's fairly obvious, I'm going to move on to the middle, okay? Kind of establish what the alpha means. Began it all. It means he's your author. It means he's your creator. It means you're, he's your home. He's where you came from. That's what he's insisting. So now let's move to the, to the middle. There's a lot of letters between alpha and omega, or A and Z. And I think by choosing the alpha and the omega, and I think some of you know this who have maybe studied the, the name, it implies that he is therefore, since he's the beginning and the end, he's the A and the Z, he is therefore Lord over all the letters in between. Everything in between. Lord over it all, master over it all. Lord of the beginning, Lord of the middle, over the B's, C's, D's, E's, and F's of life. That's the middle. He's Lord of everything in between. Now, you might say, okay, let me press that in a little bit and tell you um, what that means. And maybe what I'm about to say will trouble you a little bit. As I said, there's Alpha and Omega. He's the beginning of all things, and we're going to find out he's the end of all things, which means he is Lord of all the things in the middle. But what's interesting is the book of Revelation, follow me here, actually uses that name to begin the book and end the book. Chapter 1, verse 8, I am the Alpha and Omega. It begins the book, and in chapter 22, verse 13, he says it again, the very end of the book, I am the Alpha and the Omega, implying that all of the stuff that happens in the chapters in between, he is Lord of. Follow? It's a rather brilliant way to package a book, bookend, with the two names that basically say, hey, listen, he's Lord of all this stuff that happens in the middle. And if you've never read chapter 2 through 20, um, or at least chapter 6 through 20, there are some dark portions, I mean, some horrific judgments, some bloodshed, there's massacres, there's, there's the proliferation of evil, and, and yet there is, on each end of the book, there's a sense that I'm the Alpha, the Omega, and Lord of all that is in between. In other words, I command it all. Here's, here's a sample, all right, of, of what's found in between. These are the letters, L-M-N-O-P, between the two. And this is just a sample, and I recognize, and I want to encourage you, this is a symbolic book. 
um, which cautions us not to take things too literally, but be that as it may, what these represent must be at very least uh, tragic. Chapter 6, a quarter of the earth's population wiped out by war, famine, widespread disease, and wild beasts. There are movies that are made like that, right, today? Apocalyptic movies. Um, Chapter 8, a third of the earth is burned with fire. Chapter 8, verse 8, the sea turns to blood and a third of all sea life dies. Just pause here a second. Can you imagine that being on the news? I mean, like the tsunamis that hit Indonesia, and we're just like, wow, how could that happen? Well, this is this, multiply that by I don't know how many times. These things are, are nothing less than awesome in a tragic sort of way. Or a third of all fresh water becomes poisoned and people die from it. The sun, moon, and stars lose a third of their light. Uh, a demonic plague of locusts like scorpions are unleashed on the earth. And that's just like a little tiny sample of the in-between. You're following? Now, there's some good things in here, too. There are, there are songs of joy and songs of victory and songs of the Lamb that are woven in. But the fact of the matter, there's, there's a lot of darkness, a lot of tragedy. And here's the thing. If he's the Alpha and Omega, Lord of the beginning, that means he's Lord over all this dark stuff, too. It's, in other words, it doesn't happen outside or independent of his control. The word throne is found all the way through this book, and that's one of the central features and messages of the book that you shouldn't miss. God is sovereign. He's king. He's Alpha, Omega. He's the Lord of in-between. Lord of the LMNOPs, okay? Well, while these tragedies are happening, you also find in the book that, like, evil seems, darkness seems to be prevailing, at least for a season, Here's a section out of chapter 13. Don't be, um, I don't know, confused by the symbolism. And he says, and the beast, which is a symbol for worldly power structures that are specifically in, um, antagonistic towards God and the things of God, the people of God. So, and the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Um, his feet were like bears and his mouth had a, like a, li- um, a lion's mouth. Uh, and to it, the dragon, symbol for Satan in the book, um, gave his power and his throne, and great authority. And they worshiped the dragon. That is, they worshiped Satan. For he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? Like, no, he's the all-powerful power in, in the, on planet Earth. Um, verse 6, it's kind of skipping ahead. The beast opened his mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Those saints are the people who are followers of Jesus. So summed up, it's like evil's going crazy, evil's being worshipped, and God's people are being slaughtered to make war against the saints and to conquer them, a.k.a. kill them. Again, he is the beginning, Lord of the beginning, Lord of the end, and Lord of everything in between, including what's happening here. And and the the revelation, the book, is very careful for us to know that this does not happen independent from the throne. And the one who sits on the throne, according to Revelation chapter 5, is the Lamb, who has been given all authority. He is Yahweh's instrument of bringing history to a close. He is the one who is ruling through all of this stuff. He is Lord of the in-between. Lord of the L-M-N-O-P. 
peace. Now, it's one thing to read that. It's an entirely different thing to be in the middle of something like that. Now, as a side note, I, for one, don't believe for a second that we're going to be sucked out in order to avoid all this stuff that God's people have for centuries and two millennia at least been persecuted and they have been burned and they have been fed upon by wild beasts and they have been banished, they have been exposed, they have been drowned, they have been everywhere. Notice people have always experienced this kind of thing. There were Christians who got drowned in the tsunamis. There are Christians who get killed by earthquakes. Um, Being Christian does not keep one from experiencing natural disaster or persecution. Um, But to be in that situation, to place yourself in that situation, you'd be going, where is the Lord? Evil's taking off. Bad people are in power. People are worshiping not the true God, but the false God. Where is God in all this? I mean, that's, that, that creates soul confusion, disorientation. It creates sense of, of doubt. It makes it seem as if God is weak. He's not here. God's people are being slaughtered. And he's not here to defend them. That's, that's how it would feel. And those are the questions that, that would arise. And those are the questions that arise even in our might consider smaller scale sufferings as they are disorienting, they are confusing, they are doubt causing, they're just, they're, they're tough. Like life as you know hurts and if it doesn't hurt now, it will hurt. Everyone in here will be if you have not already been touched by death and you know that that's a horrible thing. There are times when, when grief is overwhelming and you can hardly bear it but you can't escape it. There's times when you simply don't know what to do, you don't know the future and there's no answer and you're left waiting And that's tough. And that's precisely where this name is supposed to remind you that he began it, he's going to end it, and he's Lord of the middle. He's Lord of all the letters in between, including what's happening in your life. The in-between. Now that's not to make light of the reality and the true and overwhelming pain that oftentimes comes with this life. I, I am greatly encouraged to find out that the men and women of the Bible had times when they're like, God, where are you? It tells me that I'm not alone, and it tells you you're not alone. But what I love about them is they still believed. They still believed somehow, even if it, even if it was a mustard seed of belief, they still believed God was in control and on the throne. And one of the things that realizing that the, the Lord God is, is Lord of the middle does for us is it reminds us that our pain is not without purpose. Because if it is, well then, I think most of us would despair. But to know you're here, you have purposes in it for me, for others who are going to watch me go through this, and they're going to see even if it's a mustard seed-sized faith, that I trust you. Lord of the middle. So the beginning, the middle, and then one might have a a sense of, uh, like watching a movie and not having a conclusion, going, well, that's great, Dan. So God's Lord of the middle, and life sucks. That's great. Where does it go? Is there any hope? 
Or does it just stay like this forever and ever and ever? Is just life, life chaotic? And, and that's where the last piece of the name comes in. He says, I am the alpha. I am all the letters in between, the elemental piece, and I am the omega. I am the beginning, the middle, and the end. I am Lord of the beginning, I'm Lord of the middle, and I'm Lord of the end. And here I, um, I want to come back to the text again. And this is the end. That is, he is, God is, Yahweh. The lamb on the throne is the avenger and recreator of the world. Or one might say he's the one who vanquishes evil and reestablishes perfect good. He closes an old world and he opens a new one. He closes the chapter on this sordid earthly history and he opens a brand new book. He who is seated on the throne, verse 5, said, Behold, I am making all things new. He's not making them used. He's not simply retrofitting. He is making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And and he said to me, it is done. This is at the very end of the book, right? 21. It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega. It is done. I'm the one who brings it to conclusion. Now, let me put some meat on that for us. Because he put, he's going to bring this world and history as we know it to a conclusion in, in two ways. One, as I already mentioned, he is going to vanquish all evil. As I said, it's really easy to get bogged down in the details of this book and go, man, I can't understand all these beasts and harlots and, you know, so forth. But looked at from a high level, like just kind of hopping from chapter to chapter and getting a sense of it, you realize there is a progression and flow that's happening in chapters 18, 19, 20 that's rather stirring and moving as to what God is going to do and is doing in human history. Chapter 18, for example, here's the high-level view of what God is doing. The omega, if you will, is going to bring the hammer down um, progressively. Chapter 18... Um, we read about this harlot, which is basically Satan's tool of deception and delusion in the world, of, of seducing people with money and sensuality, which I'll tell you is very much alive in our culture. And this is what is said about her. Chapter 18 tells, tells us, so Babylon, the great city, or the harlot, this is again a symbol, um, will, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. She's done. The hammer has fallen on this seductive tool. The beast, um, that power that exercises authority to kill God's people and blaspheme heaven, we're told in chapter 19 that these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The hammer has come down on the beast and false prophet. They have been vanquished. That's chapter 19. Chapter 20. The devil himself is finally, once for all, done away with. There's never to rise again. Verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever and ever. And all I can say is amen. Amen. The hammer will fall on the devil, Satan. All unbelieving humanity that is antagonistic towards the Lord and to the Lamb, 
we read in the middle of verse 20, are also brought to justice. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the dead were judged by what, they had, by what was written in the books according to what they had done. People who have harmed God's people in history are going to come back, and the hammer's going to fall. And then finally, at the very end of chapter 20, death itself is vanquished. It's destroyed. Verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. See, you get bogged down, you really don't understand. But this is what's happening in the final chapters of this book, is the, is the one on the throne is going vanquished. Harlot, vanquished the beast and false prophet, vanquished um, the devil, vanquished all unjust and wicked people, vanquished death itself. Now you can understand why in chapter 21, the chapter after this, um, God says, it is done. It's done. I have brought human history to a just conclusion. No one will question me, and it will come to a certain fruition. That's, that's part of what the Omega is. is us knowing that the hammer is going to come down. And all the things that wreck and, and create carnage in our world are going to be brought to justice and done away with vanquished once for all, never to rise again. It is done. And that word is coming. It's done. That's part of the Omega part. He's going to bring, the Lord is going to bring it to conclusion. Regardless of what our world thinks or whether it believes or not, the scripture tells us repeatedly that it's going to happen. So, the hammer's going to fall. The vanquisher of evil and the renewer of all things. That's the second piece. I mean, the good thing is that he says, in addition to bringing all those things to a close in 18, 19, and 20, he declares, I'm making all things new. The earth is renewed. The heavens are renewed. There's a new city. Um, God's people are given new life. A life without stain, a life without disappointment, a life without rejection. Where God himself descends and makes his holy habitation amongst us and calls us, my, you are my son. That's, that's part of the promise of he will be to me a son. That is, all things are made new and brought to perfection. Just as he created everything in the beginning, perfect, flawless, and morally beautiful, so in the end he will recreate all things perfect, flawless, and morally beautiful. And all who have trusted in Christ have that finality to look forward to. The closing of a dark chapter and the opening of a brand new chapter. And the reason I say that it's because those who have trusted in Christ is because that statement that's made, um, it is done. I can't help, because the Apostle John writes Revelation in the Gospel of John, on linking what said here it is done with what Jesus said on the cross as his final words. When Jesus was on the cross and he said, it is finished. But Jesus accomplished in his death what the world will one day face in its death. That the hammer fell on Christ for our evil so that we could be absolved and forgiven of it. So that we wouldn't have to fear the hammer falling on us in the future because it fell on him then. And so all who find covering and refuge and safety in what he did know that we have something new to look forward to. No matter how bad things get, no matter how difficult things get, no matter how painful or how short your life is, the fact of the matter is this is your future. 
That's part of what it means to be, I am the omega. I am the guarantee of future life for you. Um, and, you know, you're thirsty, I'm going to give you a drink without payment, as much as you want from the water of, of, of the living spring. That's, that's our hope. So, kind of putting it together, it's like, you know, he created it all. He's Lord of the beginning. Lord over the middle. Whether we can see it or not, and he's going to be Lord of the end. Now, what is that supposed to do with us, to us in our, our hearts? And, and I'm hoping that you can at least lock some of these things away in your head so that when you hear the name Alpha and the Omega, it's not just, wow, those are really cool Greek letters. But it's like, oh, what does that mean? It means he's Lord of the beginning of all things, and it means he's going to bring it to a perfect conclusion. And all of the injustice that, that we need satisfied in this world is going to be taken care of. And he has promised us life in a brand new world to recreate us and resurrect us and give us back what was lost. That's, that's what I'm hoping um, will come to mind when you hear Alpha and Omega, that he is the Lord of the beginning, Lord of the end, and therefore Lord of the middle, and Lord over the details of, of your life. And that comes out, by the way, in, um, in the couple of these verses you know, if, if you were to ask me, what, what should this do in our lives or our hearts? It could create that sense of fearless courage to endure um, in our faith. If you really believe, you started it. He's in this, even though it, it looks confusing. And I know the Omega's hammer is going to fall on evil. And his love is going to create new life. It's promised to me. Well, then, you know, you can actually bear up and find that you have a sense of courage in this present life. Verse 7 says, to the one who conquers, or another translation would be the one who endures, will have this heritage, and I will be his God, um, and he will be my son. The ones who conquer, who endure, the ones who, who don't crack, who don't um, compromise to the, to the powers of the world and to the seductions of the world, who keep their eyes on Jesus and the Lamb, and they conquer by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. That's, that's the ones who conquer here. They're the ones who receive this. They're the ones who who were given this promise and received this promise. And where do they find their courage to conquer? Well, again, the name that's found in the beginning and the end of the book, to know that he's the Alpha, the Omega, and Lord of everything in between. That should provide courage for us. And on the flip side, verse 8, but as for the cowardly, and I think this is kind of a, well, it is a warning, not kind of a warning. It's a warning to the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable. That is the ones who who don't stand in, in, in the face of evil, but rather compromise or capitulate to it. Um, their place is in the second death too. It's just a, a bit of a warning not to be cowardly, but to be a person who endures in your faith. And there are some here who you need to hear that. Just you need to endure in your faith. And you find the strength to endure, not by your own might, but by feeding your souls on the simple fact that our God is the beginning and the end, Lord of the beginning, Lord of the middle, Lord of the end, and we can trust him. Walk faithfully, walk responsibly, but trust him and endure in your faith. I don't know if you've been following the story of the young woman by the name of Miriam in Sudan. Anybody follow that? I found it 
it's made major headlines because this woman is, I think she's 26 years old, and uh, she's pregnant. She married a Christian man. She's a daughter of a Muslim man and mother of a Greek Orthodox woman, or excuse me, daughter of a Greek Orthodox woman. So she's kind of has both lines coming into her, and she not only married a Christian man, but she came out and declared herself a Christian. And that's a big no-no in a country where Sharia law um, dominates. And so May 15th of this year, maybe you heard, you know, she was sentenced to death by hanging a pregnant woman for declaring her faith in Jesus and marrying a Christian man. She had her baby in the prison. She was allowed to at least have it. And they said, well, we'll wait until you have the baby and nurse the baby before we carry out the sentence. And of course, the world went crazy. At this point, there's still some sympathy for um, religious tolerance uh, in the world. And um, so there was an appeal made, and, and, uh, and the verdict was overturned, and the sentence was released. And so she got to go home to her husband, and they tried to get out of the country Tuesday this last week. And, uh, and she was arrested again at the airport. And, uh, and then she has been released, and as of Friday, released. But she can't leave the country, a country where her particular actions are condemnable by death. I just have to ask. You know, I, I realize we're not familiar with that kind of stuff here. But maybe we should be ready. And when that time comes where you have to make a decision, not only for your own life, but for life of your children, what are you going to do in those moments when you are in court, as she was on May 15th? Are you going to be cowardly? And think of your life first, the life of your children and family first? And be willing to say, I, I disown my faith. Or will you be a conqueror? The only source of that kind of conquering courage, I think, is not found in us. It's found in the one who is the Alpha and the Omega. Lord of the middle, Lord of the beginning and Lord of the end. Will you take a moment and let that name, I don't want you to to go into pause mode here. Alpha and Omega, Lord of the middle, or excuse me, Lord of the beginning, Lord of the end, and Lord of the middle. What does that mean to you right now? What does it mean about the LMNOPs right now for you? Are you finding your strength in God who has given us these powerful names by which to say, like Yahweh, oh, wow. Alpha and Omega, wow. Just let that name just for a moment just settle maybe. Close your eyes. You could hit the lights and just let it settle over your life and your situation. Are you trusting him as Lord of the middle? Lord of the middle.